go to everydaynovelist.com slash support to join the madness. <laughs> Welcome to the Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, and I am your guide in this raucous journey of coping with the creative life. Fueled by your questions, we explore the trials and travails of productivity, discipline, art, and finances in the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 1071. Today we hear from Nicole, who asks, I have a question for you about designing colonies and how they would look if they were in a biodome. Currently, I'm designing one for a story. I was thinking to go in the direction of an old west town, but I know that there would be changes due to the local materials, planetary hazards, and it would also be different because you'd be constrained by whatever would fit under the biodome. Any thoughts on this or any advice for where my research should go? Are there any good resources that you have come across? Yes, there were a series of experiments about biodomes back in the late 80s and early 90s that went hilariously and dramatically and horribly wrong in all sorts of interesting and instructive ways. These actually informed um, my book Down From Ten, and they have informed Death Flight to Mars, which is currently on the editor's desk. You may have to look it up on Wikipedia. There was a Polly Shore movie called Biodome, which satirized the whole craze in doing these things. But they basically built these self-contained environments that uh, would mimic what you would have in an off-world situation to figure out how to make the uh, closed mater- closed loop material cycle work and how to debug the social problems, which turn out to be as bad as the material problems. But your two biggest constraints are, one, people are stuck together and they get cabin fever and they go crazy. They go. There's one of the reasons it is so hard to be an astronaut is they basically put you through an incredible series of tests and training to make sure that you are so stable that you're essentially either the most boring human being on the planet or you're kind of a mid-level psychopath in the Kevin Dutton sense of the word. Uh, read The Wisdom of Psychopaths by Kevin Dutton. It's a approach to studying psychopathy which looks at um, which looks at the phenomenon not sociopathy, which is the social predator behavior suite, but psychopathy, which is the personality trait suite that often accompanies sociopathy, but not always. Moderate psychopaths are great neurosurgeons, they're great lawyers, they're high decouplers, uh, they have a lot of charisma, they're very good at managing the people around them. Um, The early astronauts, uh, people like Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong, were low-level psychopaths. They had to be because they had to have one of the most essential traits that defines uh, Kevin Dutton-style psychopathy, which is they have a high stimulation threshold. They don't lose their shit when it comes to stress. They're easily bored. So the kinds of stress that you're under as a test pilot just sort of brings them up to a level of normal. And you can see this in their, um, in their personal lives outside. They were all speed freaks. They had, uh, uh, GM gave them all Corvettes and they were frequently clocked going well over a hundred miles an hour running around on the Cape. They're adrenaline junkies. 
And that's one of the essential characteristics. Now, of course, the other side of it is when you're doing long spaceflight, you have a high potential for boredom, so you have to keep them busy all the time, which is one of the reasons astronauts, when they're in orbit on the International Space Station, their day is scheduled to the minute. Yeah, they've got free periods, but they've always got something they're supposed to be doing, even if that something is exercise and relax. Because without that direction, that really uh, heavily imposed structure, people go nuts. Even if they're atypically stable, atypically immune to the kinds of uh, personal slights and injuries that develop between people over time in cabin fever type situations. So the group psychology aspect of any biodome type environment, whether it's on Earth or in orbit or in interstellar space on a generation ship, really, really important. Both because of the close quarters and because of the monotonous nature of the stimulation. People need variety and they need contact with the natural world or they go nuts. And if you don't believe me, look at any inner city. And I'm not talking about the social problems inherent in poverty and in multi-generational poverty. I'm talking about the weird stuff people do in cities because they don't have cliffs they can go jump off of from time to time. Um... <laughs> And I say this as someone who loved all those weird things in cities and loved to do them when I go back to to the cities. Um, they are nonetheless, even at full century saturation, they are in some ways less satisfying and stimulating than simply walking through the woods where we live now because there is so much going on. And most of it is going on below the level of conscious awareness. Your mind is seeing the distribution of trees, the leaves on the trees. It's taking in the literally the chaos mathematics of everything around you. And it creates a sort of internal order. And if things, if you're in an environment where things are engineered too well, you don't have the balance between the orderly and the apparently chaotic that puts human beings in a state of feeling at peace with their environment. Now, that's one set of problems. The other set of problems, and I finally remember the name of the experiment, it was Biosphere 2. One of those problems is that self-contained systems are really, really hard to engineer. In the natural world, everything that is wasted by one species is used by another. Anything that is permanently, and I use air quotes, permanently wasted becomes a mineralogical deposit, which later on gets dug up and used by insects or burrowing animals or humans. Everything churns. I mean, the, the, the continents themselves churn. Everything, everything is recycled. If everything is not recycled in your artificial environment, you have waste poisoning entering the system. You have uh, resource depletion. Say, for example, uh, the premise that uh, drove, the mathematical premise that drove the rationale for the lunar revolution in The Moon is a Harsh Mistress was that because the moon was being used to farm grain and ship back to Earth, the moon's mineral resources were being depleted, and the moon itself was going to go into famine. So the lunar revolution was important. It's an example of the kind of thing you have to watch for, the resource depletion. 
as anything is taken out. We have to worry about that even up here on our land. If we farm something, or we cut, say, say like we cut down a bunch of trees and we turned them into firewood and we sold the firewood, the mineralogical resources that those trees represent have now been transported off the land, and aggregate soil fertility over many, many years will go down. So that has to be replaced either by importing fertilizer or importing manure or finding it or planting um, legumes which are nitrogen fixers which replenish the soil fertility that's been pulled out or by getting our hands on lots of ash to spread to replenish the phosphorus in the ground by doing what we can to make sure that animals find it convenient to die here so that their bones can feed the mineralogical cycle. All of those things are important for the long-term viability of our little patch of wilderness. Those kinds of concerns affect us on a multi-decadal, maybe multi-century scale on our little patch of land here. For us, it's mostly a question of stewardship. It's unlikely, unless we slashed and burned the whole plot, that we would actually exhaust the mineralogical resources under our feet during our lifetimes. In an artificial environment, that's not the case. You've got what you've got. You don't have a whole planet beneath you with hundreds of thousands of years of biological activity to build up the um, mineralogical resources that sustain life. You've got what you've got. So all of your closed systems, all of your, all of your recycling systems have to be basically perfect. That mean, the re one of the reasons that Biosphere 2 failed, and one of the reasons it was a really useful experiment, is it showed how many parts of the natural recycling systems were invisible at the time. How much microbes meant. How different kinds of microbes do different things and how you have to keep a balance of them. Um, the waste problems in Biosphere 2 created all sorts of knock-on effects, and it happens in a chaotic manner, meaning that small perturbations, small areas of imbalance at a low level, get magnified and spin the whole system towards an attractor state very, very quickly. In the natural world, humans would have to do a whole, whole hell of a lot to actually render the surface of the Earth uninhabitable. Not even complete nuclear bombardment would do the trick. It might wipe us out, but it wouldn't render the surface of the Earth uninhabitable because the microbes would persist and they would start the cycle again. In an artificial environment, where you're out in space or on a planet that doesn't have a magnetic field to shield from solar radiation and whatnot, you've got to deal with making sure, figuring out ways to measure every single aspect of the entire environmental recycling chain, both mechanical and biological, and to make sure that you can fix it when it goes out of whack, which also implies that you have to understand every single aspect of systems that, for humans living on Earth, are ancient and invisible, to the point where the best of modern science doesn't even know what all of them are. So it's one of the great sources of potential conflict is having something go wrong in your artificial environment and having your people have to figure it out. Um, let's see, I'm a little bit worried that I'm now cooking a dead horse, kicking a dead horse, cooking a dead horse would be far tastier than kicking one. 
Um, do, 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 do. So, yeah, that uh, as far as thoughts on where your resources, research should go, check out, um, bi- check out Biosphere 2. Do deep reading on Biosphere 2. Do deep reading on NASA white papers about Mars colonies and about the experiments in figuring out how to set them up. Um, read some of the books on Elon Musk's reading list because he occasionally li- releases reading lists that he does for SpaceX, Mars colonization. Um, look to uh, the books by Robert Rubin of the Mars Society. Um, anything like that will get you sort of kicked off in the right direction. Good luck, and we'll see you tomorrow. Please send in more questions. The Everyday Novelist is written and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty Nakian, and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2023 J. Daniel Sawyer, and the production is copyright 2023 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Join the conversation. Submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat. Or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you.